Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. And welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. Today, we've got something slightly different for you. It's a bit of a collaboration between our Labour History Project and our Uncovered series. Hena Shah, former Progressive Britain host, returns to co-host this episode with me. Myself and Hena get the chance to speak to Samara Linton. Samara co-authored the Diane Abbott biography with Robert Bunce. And the two of them will be writing a chapter for Progress's Labour History book, which we're really excited to read. And Samara also co-edited The Colour of Madness with Rihanna Walcott. This is an anthology of poems, short stories and art about the intersections between race and mental health here in the UK. As a doctor herself, Samara tells us a bit more about the relationship between race and mental health and how this impacts 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to end the podcast by listening to Samara read an extract from the anthology. I really do hope you enjoy listening to Samara as much as I enjoy chatting to her. Hi Samara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so we've loved reading the Diane Abbott biography and we just wanted to hear a bit more from you about how you went about researching the book and how you managed to put together in such a short space of time. Um, in putting together this book, I was really lucky in that I was working with my co-author Robin Bunce and Robin is extremely experienced in kind of political history and especially around the time period that we focus on I guess, which Diane's own life really covers and her career really covers. Um, so I drew a lot on his own experiences and his expertise. So he had already started digging around in the archives and had already started interviewing Diane and um, a few other people um, when I joined the project, when he asked me to join the project. So I very much just latched onto that. And um, we decided that the best thing to do was just to split up our work into chapters and we kind of took over different chapters and then afterwards we kind of collaborated in the editing of those chapters and added our voice to all of them so um, in the areas that I was focusing on I started off very much around the 90s 
and yeah just going back into like reading every news article that came out that had anything to do with Diane at that time going back and finding old videos of her speeches or um interviews and just very much immersing myself in her world and you know the closer we got to present day in some ways the easier it was because it was easier to access that material but also there was just so much more of it um which posed its own problems as well so I'm not going to pretend it was easy. It was a lot, a lot of work to do in a very short space of time. But I think it was just, you know, discipline and the fact that it was fascinating. And I did get so immersed in it as I was doing it. And I think I helped the time pass faster too. Yeah, and you mentioned as well um, in the beginning of the book that as you were writing it, when you, when you were writing it sort of during, um, you finished writing it in June 2020. Um, and at that time, obviously, we were in lockdown, um, we had the pandemic, and also we had the BLM protests in the States and uh, here. Did that impact sort of the end of the book and how how you sort of concluded it? Or did that affect sort of the narrative throughout? Um, it definitely affected the end of the book because... In a way, a lot of the things that Diane has been campaigning for or bringing to the public attention, um, these are, you know, things that these are issues that have been around for decades. And unfortunately, so many of the things that she was saying in the 80s and the 90s are still relevant today. And I think writing, especially writing that conclusion, writing the final chapters in this period of time when not that these issues are happening because these things are always happening and these disparities and um you know racism and abuse has always been happening but I think at a time when it's been brought to the public attention and when the nation and I guess the international community have really taken notice it just gave us an opportunity to I guess contextualize it and to make it relevant for people now so I think people you know reading it yes it is a piece of history but it also you know the issues there the topics there are still really really relevant today and you know these are things that we have to grapple with and get our minds around and do the work on today as well it's not just something in the past that Diane's done it's our problem too yeah absolutely and I'd be keen to learn a little bit more about how you found her I mean you said that Robin had done a fair bit and he'd already um, interviewed her did you have much contact with her and what did you learn and sort of are, are there any really interesting bits about your cat about her character that you pulled out while you were doing your research? Mm. Yeah, I so yeah, the first time I met Diane, I was so I was incredibly nervous. I think just because I was nervous in kind of like a you know respectful kind of way because she, you know she is the first um, black woman MP that we've had because she has been around for so long, because she has, you know, survived in kind of that environment for so long, you know, this is really, she's an icon in that way. And I was really, really nervous about meeting her for the first time. Um, and yeah, I met with her a few times, actually, a couple of times for the interview, but also kind of just throughout the process of getting archived together and photographs and that kind of thing. And then, yeah, once um, we went into lockdown, it was very much more kind of Zoom um calls and that kind of thing um but meeting Diane I, I always say this for me Diane meeting Diane it felt it felt like meeting an auntie because yeah she just reminded me of you know so many of the aunties that I grew up with whether in my family or my wider community or my church family um just you know warm and welcoming and very matter of fact very no nonsense but you know that wasn't 
a negative. That was something I was really familiar with. And I think feeling familiar um, and seeing that familiarity when I met her made the process so much easier for me because it meant that, you know, this wasn't a stranger. It wasn't like a, a foreign person that I was trying to get my head around. She was just a person who has done the work and has done you know, it has put up with a lot of things that feel very familiar to me as a black woman. And I think meeting her actually really, it only increased, I guess, my respect for her and my desire to really um, tell her story as factually and as truthfully as I could. And I was just going to make a quick comment on that, which is I really relate to what you said, Samara, about her having that kind of perception as an auntie, as a member of someone's family and really warm. And I think that's something that lots of people in the labor movement feel. I know certainly lots of anti-racist activists I work with really feel like she reflects and speaks to them in a way, perhaps actually lots of other black female MPs don't. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And you, I think it was Shami Chakrabarti in one of the interviews, she talks about, um, just how Diane has this kind of mama bear kind of, you know, feeling to her and these instances where, you know, Diane stood up for her, kind of come to her rescue and how, you know, often people don't expect that side of her um, because when we do, when she does pop up in the media, there's a particular portrait of her that is presented. And so I think people are usually pleasantly surprised when they meet her and see that, you know, she is, a human being <laughs> with warmth and feelings and affection and um and who's really really loyal and has really strong friendships so yeah it was really lo- it was a lovely lovely surprise that's really yeah that was a really lovely description um sort of reflecting on her career obviously diane's been on in the front bench shadow cabinet over the past few years under corbyn um but pre- previous to that she spent most of her career sort of on the back benches and um, do you think that that sort of hindered her career or representing her constituents or does that reflect her as an MP and what she stood for? Diane is all about her constituents. She loved her life as a backbencher. She loves being a backbencher and she she's actually said this a few times because as a backbencher, she is a lot more free to talk about and focus on the things that matter to her and her constituents so, you know, when she is on the front bench, she has to be much more careful about towing the party line and about not painting the party in a particular light. And, you know, we saw that when she was on the front bench, she that's when she, you know, received a great deal of abuse that she didn't necessarily wasn't wasn't necessarily as exposed to when she was a backbencher um, and saying the same things, basically and doing the same things. And, you know, Diane as a backbencher is wholly, wholly committed to her constituency and, you know, her constituents love her. They have kept, they've re-elected her time and time again for the last 33 years. And I think that really says a lot about, um, about her. And, you know, even while she was on the front bench, she was still being, you know, she still managed to maintain that relationship with her constituency. Um, And yeah, I think definitely when you're on the front bench, there are a lot of other, um, I wouldn't want to call them distractions because they are equally important part of the work of being an MP. Um, there, but yeah, there are a lot of other issues that you have to think about that you didn't have to necessarily be at the forefront of when you're a backbencher. But that being said, a lot of the issues that she was dealing with, a lot of the challenges that she was facing as a frontbencher, these were issues and challenges that you know affected her constituents. 
And even when she was making, you know, broad speeches about immigration and about policing, she always rooted these arguments in the experience of her constituents. So I think even as a frontbencher, she's always drawn on her experiences as a backbencher and always drawn on her experiences um, working with her local constituents. So I would say that it definitely didn't hinder her career at all. I think it's what she loves doing. And she it really she really used that experience um, when she came on the front bench. Yeah, you mentioned as well, in those past years as a frontbencher, she did attract a lot of abuse from the media and from members and from the general public um and obviously a lot of that was um racist abuse and um the party needs to reflect on how um <laughs> how you know treats of us a black um female mp um and there's definitely a lot of work to be done there um why do you think she she's attracted uh, so much sort of negative, um, well, abuse, uh, racist abuse. Do you, is it because she's the first um, female black MP or is there um, another layer to it? Yeah, I think we can't we can't deny the impact that her being a black woman has had on the abuse that she's received. And, you know, when you say that, people tend to be like, oh, you're playing the race card. The reason we don't like her is because we don't like her policies. But if you look at the abuse that she receives, if you actually look at the content, so much of it is racialized and sexualized. You know, she was getting death threats and rape threats and she's being called racist language, racist language was used against her. And, you know, it's hard to say, oh, there's no racial aspect to the abuse she's getting when people are literally calling her racist slurs. Um, and, you know, that definitely has had a role to play. Um, you know, black and Asian MPs in general get more abuse online especially on twitter than you know their white counterparts um and amnesty you know, has done quite a bit of research on this in terms of kind of quantifying the about amount of abuse they have and it has been disproportionate abuse towards um, black and asian and other ethnic minority mps but then especially diane um you know leading up to the 2017 general election you know we commonly recite the fact that she received nearly half of all abusive tweets um, that was targeted at MPs, which is like absolutely abhorrent. And you know, you know, she wasn't the only black woman around at that time, but she definitely was the most prominent um, black MP. And as I said, a lot of the abuse that she received was really heavily rooted in the fact that she is a black woman. But I think also, you know, a lot of the abuse Diane gets is because she is very outspoken. And because she has never really been very afraid to say what she thinks, even if it's going to be deemed controversial, or even if it's, you know, against the party line. And that also draws um, abuse. And I think not only draws abuse, but I think it means that she isn't protected um, by her peers in the same way that someone else who maybe follows the party line or is more of the... Um, you know, the centre of that party, not politically centred, but, you know, who's more um, integrated into the depths of the party would. So she's not as protected by her peers um, because a lot of things she says often don't fall in line with what the rest of her peers would like her to say. So I think it's a it's a dual effect of her being a black woman and people just finding that too hard to deal with, evidently. And also the fact that she's very outspoken, um, even when that means that she will attract abuse. 
Yeah, I really hear that. And actually, it speaks a lot to a conversation that I was having recently about the squad and about AOC and the question of whether um, if you're more radical, it's easier to do that from a position of privilege in other areas. If you're a white man, is your radicalism seen as something really progressive and that you have great new ideas? Whereas if you're a brown or black woman, is it seen as something that's subverting what's normal, which I think is really interesting. Um, you talked a little bit about the fact that she's Britain's first black female MP, and obviously she has a history as a trailblazer. Um, I'd like to ask a little bit about what you think her time at university had to contribute to that. I mean, there's a great picture of her next to Mary Beard in her matriculation photo at Cambridge. Um, and I wonder what your reflection is on that and whether you had any sort of similar reflections about your time in sort of white spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things that Robert and I always say, and I think we kind of illustrate in the book, is that we say that Cambridge was the making of Diane. And we say this for two reasons. Um, one, like Cambridge is where Diane became a socialist. And, you know, it's when she kind of first became very, very interested in socialism as a theory and also began to learn about how it had worked or had worked and become more engaged with socialism um, as a political stance and while she was at university. And we know that over the last, you know, three decades, socialism and socialist values have really shaped um, Diane's approach to politics. Um, but then on the other side, Cambridge was the making of Diane because at Cambridge she learnt how to stand her ground um, in a place where she was not only a minority um, but was also at times unwanted and she learned how to stand her ground and make change while within you know the establishment and you know she went on to work at the civil service and then you know has spent the rest of her life pretty much in parliament and I think those early those early years at university really prepared her for that because when she was at um, Cambridge and there was a lot of debate about whether um, women should be allowed to be admitted to all of the Cambridge colleges and she engaged with um, some of the feminist campaigns um, while at Cambridge but felt a bit disconnected from them because they were very um, steeped in white feminism um, at Cambridge, she was one of very, very, very few black students. She says that in her three years there, she came across one other black student in her whole three years there. And they were a postgraduate um, international student. So, you know, we talk about how, you know, black people, especially are really underrepresented today in Oxbridge. But, you know, how much more so for Diane going to Cambridge in the 70s. So she, at Cambridge, you know, she really learned how to be in these spaces as the only one in very many forms and how to stand her ground in those spaces and how to make her voice heard. She joined the history, um, one of the history boards to help shape the history curriculum in the university. She was, you know, talking and working and challenging her seniors in those environments. And again, I think it really gave her that confidence because when she started, she felt so out of place. And she said after her first term at, at university, she thought about leaving and she was really, really considering leaving and thinking this place isn't right for me. And, you know, a friend encouraged her to stay and give it, you know, give it another shot. And you see this real transformation from Diane, who feels completely overwhelmed and out of her depth to, you know, the Diane, I guess, that we now know who will take on anyone she feels needs to be taken on. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's really true. And I what I thought was really interesting in your response was your conversation about her relationship to the women's movement while she was at university. And yeah. as well as a number of um, black people on her course. So I, um, I was at Oxford and I think that really hasn't changed. And I've done lots of access work and you can, I think, perhaps out of a course of um, 200 people less fewer than 10% of the students were black. Um, and I think there's been something there that progress has been made, but it hasn't really been made, particularly in terms of how many black people are entering and thriving at those elite, at, at, at those elite in institutions. And whether there's actually a lot of commonality in her experience, particularly when she, in, when she in, engaged with campaigns at her university and the engagement that students have now and what if you have any reflections on how far activism has come on at universities and what it's like now yeah honestly it's one of those things that you think oh there's been a massive transformation but I still remember when I went to a women's campaign meeting and um, when I was at Cambridge and I looked around the room and there was one other black girl and one girl who was I think from some had some South Asian heritage and you know everyone else the rest of the 30 40 girls there um were all white and I just thought oh, I can't do this <laughs> um and you know I stayed for the meeting but I never really returned and I just thought I'm gonna have to do my own thing and raise my concerns elsewhere and it wasn't because there was nothing that you know these um, other women could give to me or nothing that I felt I can contribute but I just didn't want to have to come up across against these microaggressions and have to explain certain nuances and explain why it's not just enough to talk about women's rights and how we have to you know take into consideration other identities and have to teach people intersectionality I just didn't want to do it um, and you know I already had enough to be doing I was doing my degree and doing lots of extracurriculars and you know the fact that that was yeah in you know 20 13 or 2014 or whenever it was um it's really it's really shameful it's really sad and you know while I was at university um there were a few um black women who started um black women of other women of color actually who started a group called um, fly and it was specifically for women of color to have a space for them because there was this recognition that it just was lacking in other spaces for women so you know even something like that, I just feel like, why Why did Diane's experience still feel familiar to me? That's really, that's, that's shameful, really. That shouldn't be a familiar experience so many years down the line. Um, and like when I went to Cambridge, you know, I wasn't the only black student that I ever met. And, you know, I was able to join the African Caribbean Society and get involved with the BME campaign. But because of the collegiate system in Cambridge and, you know, similarly in Oxford, even if there are other students you're so spread out between all the different colleges day to day you, you may not ever see them and you know there was one point when you know you would go around for like a week and you wouldn't see another black student in your college maybe if you go to lectures you see another black student maybe if you go to these events that you know you as students have had to organize and help fund for yourselves you'll see others but it wasn't the norm and you know that's yeah, again in the 21st century so like you said um henna there's been there's been progress there's been change but also it's so excruciatingly slow and it's incredibly frustrating and you know if i talk to my black female friends now who and um, who went to cambridge and, and who you know are now graduates and doing their own things 
pretty much all of you will tell you exactly the same thing that you know they're grateful to Cambridge in some ways for you know the experiences it gave them the education but also it was like really hard and a lot of people a lot of us had mental health challenges during that time a lot of us felt really isolated and alienated and misunderstood a lot of us experienced racism and you know even the more subtle forms and and microaggressions like a lot of us have these experiences um still so I think yeah there has been change but it's been very very slow and and it's hard to celebrate the change when it feels like it's just crumbs when really what you deserve is the whole loaf so to speak yeah and just a quick reflection before we move on it reminds me of something we did in the first lockdown me and lots of my friends from college are all white we were reading um girl woman other which if you have read out there you i love could. it so much honestly and um <laughs> There's a character who, I can't remember her name, I should definitely remember her name, who sort of um, grows up and she's in this flat with her mum and she enjoys the food from her heritage and then she goes to university and becomes like quote unquote whitewashed and gets herself a white boyfriend and like goes and works in the city and straightens her hair and dresses differently and she doesn't want to eat her mum's food anymore. And I remember talking about it to my white friends from uni and they were all like oh it's really sad that she feels she has to do that I feel so sorry for her mum like she's being really horrible to her mum and actually my reflection on that and it's interesting because I don't think I ever came to the point of being able to share why that annoyed me so much but I think there's something there about people still not realizing what it takes to be part of those spaces and actually like from her point of view and from my point of view that reaction that choice to eat different food look differently work in a different space care about different things is as much a self-preservation mechanism within that space as it is about her changing or a rejection of where she's come from I thought that was just surprising that that reminded me of that experience I had recently yeah yeah no yeah and I love reading that book as well and reading her story I also forgotten her name it's really a bit strange <laughs> but um reading her story as well like I it was yeah I felt really um saddened by it because you completely empathize with that feeling and you completely empathize with the struggle that she was going through the internal struggle to kind of reconcile her identity with the people who she was surrounded by in her community um and I think it's interesting how people I guess the decisions people make in response to that struggle and in response to that conflict. Because I feel for me, I think I did the opposite. I feel like being at Cambridge and being just surrounded by so much, everyone was so homogenous. And I just thought, no, I need to, I need to like shake this up. And I think I sort, and because everything was so, I think before I'd taken the fact that I was a black woman and I had my family around me and people who have done my identity, I'd taken that all for granted. Um, I grew up in London and, you know, I think I took that for granted. So when I was in Cambridge, I was like, no, I can't take this for granted. I have to be intentional about it. And that's when, you know, I really dived deep into black literature and black feminism, womanism, and I really immersed myself in that world. And I think my, yeah, my response to that feeling of isolation, alienation was, yeah, it was to like rebel against it and to push against it. Um, and I don't, I'm not saying that my way of doing it was better, but it's it, it stems from that same conflict. It stems from that same feeling of otherness that you have when you are in those kind of spaces. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping 
and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks so much, Smart. That was, yeah, really insightful. Um, moving on to um, your, sort of in your other life when you're not writing about Diane. Um, so <laughs> you're also a junior doctor and um, edited this anthology, Colour of Madness. And I just want to talk a bit more about that, if that's okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so I graduated from medical school in 2018. And um, I'm actually not currently practising medicine. I'm currently pursuing other interests because clearly I'm not very good at sticking to one thing. (laughs) But, you know, my licence is still there. I'm still qualified. I can go back to it. Um, That's what I tell my parents whenever they question me me about my life choices um but yeah so in 2018 um I graduated medical school and in that final year of medical school and um, I worked with uh Rihanna Walcott who um we were actually at the same school uh, years back but we weren't really very we weren't ever really friends we weren't ever really in the same you know part of the school and that kind of thing but we'd always kind of followed each other's work on the peripheries and just kind of kept up to date what with what each other were doing just through socials and you know she had been in touch with a publisher about putting together this work that really explores the mental health um of people of color and because I guess she'd seen that I'd done a bit of writing about mental health and I'd already spoken a bit about my mental health um and because of my I guess my background in medicine as well um we decided to partner up and do this um, anthology together and yeah for those who don't know the anthology is called The Colour of Madness and it's a collection of stories and essays and poems and artwork all by um, black asian and ethnic minority people in the uk who have some sort of connection to mental health um, and by that specifically what i mean is that most of the contributors have um, had experienced mental health difficulties themselves or they are you know close relative or carer for someone who has or they work in a, a mental health um service um, and we decided to put together this collection of everyone's experiences and their ways of expressing their experiences 
and yeah we kind of groups it under I guess the different range of emotions and the nuances of human feeling and human experiences and yeah it was very much our first venture into putting together a book um first time doing anything like it we learned a lot of lot on the go both of us and yeah it ended up being such a wonderful success because I think people were really people were really yearning for something in which they could see themselves um because you know the mental health narrative like so many other um things in the public eye is very very um, homogenous and you see certain kinds of faces you see hear certain kinds of stories and and you know if you're from if you're someone like me for example who's from um a caribbean background and you know i grew up in a um, religious family and you know faith is important to me and my experiences of migration have also shaped my identity and you know all these things that you just don't see in the day-to-day anti-stigma campaigns that you see about mental health so it's quite important for us to kind of create a space where these things could be seen and explored and people could see it and see themselves in it um and I think one of the one of the I think the real successes of this anthology is that it's inspired people to do more (laughs) um it's inspired people to you know start their own workshops and do their reading groups and people have gone on to do further study um and they say that they were inspired by just reading about the experiences of other people who were like themselves um which I think is absolutely amazing and I think it's also important for um white people I think especially white professionals um because the reality is that um black and Asian people are disproportionately affected by mental health issues in the UK um you know just because of our own experiences in the world that kind of create different stresses and it's important for people working in mental health to understand or at least be exposed to some of the nuances of our experiences when we engage with a you know white institution and I call it a white institution because of you know modern psychiatry was developed you know by Europeans with a particular framework and a particular way of seeing the world and didn't encompass the diverse range of human experience that people from different um, cultures and different countries bring so I think it's yeah really educational for the people who aren't familiar but also it's had the real benefit of feeling familiar and helping people feel seen for those who do see themselves in it. Mm, Yeah and you say there that you know, it's really important that you know, white people re- read this and take take that from it. And also, I think that's more relevant now than, than it was. Well, it was, it was really important when you wrote it in 2018, but mm. it's particularly relevant now, I think, in, in 2020, when we have COVID, which we know is disproportionately affecting black and minority ethnic groups. Mm. Um, and there's there's a strong link there between people who are, have COVID or recovering from COVID and also um suffering from mental health problems i think the, i saw statistics was like one in five people who've had covid are being diagnosed with a mental health um illness for the first time in their lives which i think mm. is just a, a huge statistic um and that's a really sort of worrying venn diagram for me <laughs> about of like race mental health minorities being impacted by mental health normally and then we have covid on top of it which is disproportionately affecting black and minority ethnic people and yeah like that's terrifying so what, what do you think needs to happen and or what do you think people need to to learn about yeah it's oh, what needs to happen oh gosh that's even a big question because 
I guess, I guess first I just want to guess, add on what you've said about, you know, the impact, the mental health impact of COVID. Because it's not even just the people who've had COVID. It's the people who've had to care for people with COVID. It's the people who've been bereaved, who've lost someone during COVID. You know, for example, Black and Asian people, we are overrepresented as workers in the NHS. Um, so many, many, many um, ethnic minorities work in the NHS, which means their exposure, you know, they don't get to shield at home. They don't get to, you know, work from home. They are facing this every single day. They're seeing people get sick. They're seeing people die. They're seeing their colleagues get sick and die. They're seeing their family members get sick and die. And they have to go back to work after, you know, however many weeks of compassionate leave. And, you know, they don't get to have that space from, the continuous trauma that COVID has really brought. So yeah, there's that bereavement aspect. There's the aspect of the trauma from having to work in the NHS while all of this is going on. And then there's also the fact that, you know, people are really struggling financially um, because of COVID. And again, um, some of the early figures that have come out have suggested that Black and Asian people are more likely to have financial concerns during this time um, than, you know, the general population. So you've got so many stressors coming from different angles hitting you left right and center and it's it's I'm not it's a terrifying time I think I think yeah. I'm really privileged in terms of the job security I have and I have multiple sources of income and you know and I'm young and I don't live with anyone who's vulnerable I'm not a carer and I'm not trying to do childcare while also do my job and you know there's a lot of privileges that I have that protect me from a lot of these you know these stresses um but you know, I can see, like I talk, I call my parents and, you know, their, their friends are in hospital and it's, um, it's really painful. And I think there's, you know, we have COVID coupled with just the public displays of black trauma <laughs> that we've been seeing this year as well. Um, there's a lot of pain, um, a lot of pain in the community, a lot of pain in individuals. And I think the mental health, um, consequences of this are going to be immense if, well, they're going to be immense anyway, but I think particularly so if people don't acknowledge that's the case. Um, and I think, you know, we have all of our plans about COVID and all of our plans about the mental health impact of COVID. If they don't seriously take into consideration that a huge proportion of the people you're going to be dealing with are from ethnic minority backgrounds, there are people who already were um, experiencing disadvantage in many ways. There are people who likely will be disproportionately exposed to COVID in many ways. There are people who already experience racism and already um, distrust the medical system because of their experiences in the medical system and the history of the medical system and how that's been used against them and the history of mental health services and how that's harmed certain communities. If we're trying to approach the mental health crisis and the mental health needs of people post-COVID without taking all of that into consideration, um, that for me is the worrying thing. Because that, for me, means that we are facing a future um, in which entire communities are having a, a silent crisis, a crisis that's not being acknowledged, a crisis that's not being seen, or worse, a crisis that's been seen but undermined, um, and then expected to carry on as if everything is okay. So, you know, you ask me what kind of things need to happen. I think, honestly, a lot of the things that we've been asking for... <laughs> a long time and by we I just mean like communities and the people who do research in this area and who do work in this area you know we need we've realized that the current model that we have of you know people going in to have appointments and seeing psychiatrists and getting diagnosis 
that's all well and good when the world's functioning, I guess, as it should, quote unquote. Um, but now, you know, people are vulnerable. They're not able to leave their homes as much. People are being, we're realising how important connection is and how important community is and the impacts of isolation. And we're realising how much um, these things need to be a central part of our approach to mental health. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, when we're able to kind of go back to some resemblance of normal in terms of being able to go out and see our friends and family, that community and that addressing isolation and that connection, as wishy-washy as it sounds, I really hope that that becomes a central part of how we approach mental health because these things are so protective and so often the way in which mental health services approach things is really individualistic um, and I think that's just a problem of the West in general. We have the individual come in, we treat the individual, we give them that medication, they see that therapist and they go home and we don't take a community-centred approach and we don't take a family-centred approach and we don't yeah, we don't look beyond the individual. We're very bad <laughs> at looking at the social circumstances that that individual's in and doing something about it. And I'm hoping that at least this year, people have seen how all these things come together and all the different ways in which the various aspects of our life, the social, the political, the economic, you know, how all of these aspects impact our lives and hopefully we'll take a more holistic approach um, to mental health. I'm hoping that we will move, continue to move away from, you know, detention as the primary um, mode of <laughs> looking after people who are unwell. Um, you know, there have been a lot of moves towards reducing the tension rates, and that's something that's generally accepted as something that we need to do. Um, and there's been more moves towards, you know, community-based treatments and community-based care and care that empowers the individual and care that, you know, takes into consideration the different facets of their identity so I'm, I'm really hoping we move more towards that because if we don't oh bad things are coming <laughs> yeah absolutely thanks Samara and I think um if our listeners haven't heard or seen much I think it was only quite recently and I do a lot of um like anti-racist organizing and campaigning um and one of the things that I didn't understand about, and I think this is where sort of like history really informs us and why I think part of the reason why I was so excited to see you write this book is actually how much history informs the structures that we have now. And I learned a bit more about medical racism in the United States and its link to slavery and actually its impact on the black experience. And I shouldn't have been shocked but I guess I was shocked and actually when you understand how medicine has operated for the past few hundred years and who's been tested on and how people have been tested on and where it's come from and the kinds of exploitation that's happened of um, people in the global south and their traditional remedies it's not any surprise that um, people who aren't white basically have a different relationship to um, medicine and the medical world. Um, just got one last question, and I guess you've already touched on it, but it's a little bit more about sort of what your views are on um, broader inequality. And as I said, I do a lot of anti-racist organizing. I'm um, co-founder of a group called Charity So White. And around COVID, we uh, wrote a paper because uh, no one was asking the question. This was back in April. No one seemed 
to be asking the question about why COVID was impacting ethnic minorities more or was it impacting ethnic minorities more? No one cared. And we were like, well, this is so obvious if you look at it from a criminal justice point of view, from a housing point of view, from a labor market point of view, from a health point of view, this is gonna hurt our people more. Um, and I wonder really have any thoughts on why it took um, the government so long to realize that that was the case and why you think that um, the impacts of issues like COVID on minorities are often so ignored? Yeah, I think I think one of the things, I guess it's both the pro and con of the way in which we approach policy in general, um, is that, you know, we, we want everything to be evidence-based. Um, and, you know, coming from a scientific background, coming from a medical background, yes, <laughs> evidence is good. Science is good very helpful when used correctly and um so there is that that degree of um you know gathering data gathering evidence before you make any sort of claim or judgment that being said common sense is also very good and um i think you know while the data was being gathered while we were getting the facts and figures together if you looked around like you said, it was very obvious to many of us um, why um, certain groups, um, non-white people, were being particularly affected by um, COVID. So, and often, to be honest, often it's our kind of hunches that drive the research that then get the policies changed. Um, and, you know, as this was happening, you know, many of us just looked and thought, oh, this is not going to be good for us. And then, by raising that, then people will thought, actually, maybe we should do the research and then get there. But I just think, yeah, the way we do, the way we do policy, everything's so slow. And, you know, you really see the the, the harm that that can cause when you have something like a pandemic, um, which requires, you know, timely decisions, timely choices, um, timely um, responses. Um, and I think also part of the problem is that our... Um, we have a very fragmented approach to to life, <laughs> um, and I mean in that I mean like we separate health um, issues of health from issues of like social care, from issues of the economy, from issues of politics, from issues of education, and we we seg- we segment and try to compartment compartmentalize um, life in this way. So when you have something like COVID, which you know at first glance seems like a health issue, but then as you dig into it isn't just a health issue by no means is it just a health issue it's it, like you said it's exposed issues of overcrowding it's exposed issues of um who has access to you know ppe exposed issues of racism exposed issues um of what well, we know it's exposed issues in the economy <laughs> um exposed issues of, of education it's exposed the problem of distrust in authority um distrust um, between authorities and the communities who they're supposed to serve and I think the slowness also comes from the fact that we have this fragmented approach to human beings, which just doesn't really make sense. And I'm going to go back to what I said about, you know, we have to be holistic in the way in which we approach these things. And, you know, I think the word holistic is thrown about a lot and I'm sometimes a bit reluctant to use it. But, you know, it just goes back to that very basic concept of we live multifaceted lives, we're multifaceted individuals. We exist in, you know, many different worlds and many different spaces. And if we continue to approach um, progress through the lens of 
I'm going to fix this bubble and then this bubble and then this fear and then this fear, then the people who whose life are most affected by the intersections of all of these different parts of life will be the ones who suffer the most. They will be the ones who fall through the cracks. And I think that's what we've seen this year with COVID. Samara, thank you so much for coming to chatting to us. Um, it's Yeah, it was a great pleasure. And I'm really inspired by what you've already done in your career and all the different aspects of it. Um, I'm really excited to see what you get up to next. What book, what book will be your next project? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've asked you to pick out one of your favourite parts from The Colour of Madness. Can you read it out for us just to close? Um, so the poem I've chosen is called Self-Discovery and it's by Misha Montana. When I tell you that aliens have implanted chips in my head, or that the CIA is leaving microphones under my bed, that I think I am Jesus. Don't get caught up on the metaphors. Don't try to take my poetry and fit it into your theory of psychology in attempt to calculate how far away I am from the normal way that a human being relates to itself. Don't lock me into your definitions of mental health. No, I don't actually think that I am Jesus of Nazareth who walked the desert for 40 days and brought salvation through death. What I am trying to communicate is that I now recognise myself as important, as having a cross to bear, as a being made of love, as a being with a great purpose, as a being with a strong spirit. So don't get upset when I refuse to let you convince me that it is irrational to feel like a god when I have finally encountered my divinity, when I have promised myself to no longer let the demons, the CIA, the aliens, my negative thoughts win in their attempt to put out my fire, win in their attempt to silence me, or turn me into something I don't want to be. So when I tell you that I'm fighting the aliens in my head, that I'm getting rid of the microphones that the CIA have put under my bed, that I feel like Jesus, don't get caught up on the metaphors. Simply reply, it's about time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.